0: Isaiah 5, starting with verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So far, the perfect word of God. And now as I preach on it, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in the sight of our rock and our redeemer. Amen. you. You don't just walk up to someone and tell them what they're doing wrong. Not if you want them to listen to you anyway. Our Nathan was named because of our admiration for the prophet Nathan. The audacity and the cleverness he showed In 2 Samuel 12, intent to confront King David with his sin, he began with a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And with this approach, he gets David to listen genuinely rather than defensively, even though the tables will be turned on David soon enough. Isaiah starts chapter 5 with, a ballad, a love song. He wants God's people to listen, to understand, and to agree. But his end game isn't romance, but conviction. The people will listen to the song, they'll understand the situation, and they'll agree with the vine dresser's perspective. And then and only then will Isaiah raise the issue of Judah's own. Ingratitude, And, as with many of Isaiah's eye-opening accusations against God's people, I hope we listen carefully. The time and the place seem so, so different. But I tell you, the temptation to squander the work of God in our lives it remains still today. A question to consider and one I'll come back to later this morning is this. Are we the church of God, the people of God? Are we yielding an abundant harvest of fruit proportional with the abundant grace God has invested in us? Where this love song begins is not with the vineyard, but with the vine dresser. Verse 2 explains just how much work put into the vineyard. When we bought our house, we had to bring in dozens of dump truck loads of dirt to try and level the backyard. And the crew was getting really cheap fill dirt. So we spent days afterwards combing through, pulling out the rocks and the bricks and the debris. It was backbreaking in the heat. And this vine dresser, after digging the rows and the trenches for the vines likewise cleared the dirt of the stones and the debris, anything that could make the soil unproductive. And then he planted the vineyard, not just with vines, but with choice vines. And he built a watchtower so he could keep a close eye on how everything was doing and to prepare for the harvest. Kids, I know that some of you have built treehouses and forts, And you know how much work that is, hauling the materials and climbing up there to do the buildings. These watchtowers in Israel had to be at least 15 feet high. Some of them were as much as 50. And they'd have a storage area underneath for the harvested crops. And above, they would have a living area where people could rest and sleep and eat during the harvest season. It took a lot of work to build a watchtower. The vine dresser also hewed out a wine vat, a large vessel made with wood or stone in the earth where the ripe grapes would be put to begin the winemaking process. After all, he wasn't doing all this work for nothing. He was working in a vineyard so that it would produce. And with all the work that he put into it, didn't he have the right to expect That it would produce? That God's people are compared to a vineyard is fitting. One of the reformers said that it's because, one, no possession was dearer to a landowner in that day than a vineyard. But two, nothing demands so much constant work. But this beloved did the work. He did the work the vineyard required. And then he waited for the vineyard to produce. I've had the joy of picking ripe grapes off the vines of several vineyards in my life. They pop with just the right amount of sweetness. They're delicious. And the wine they can produce is even better. They're delectable. They're useful. That's why they're also valuable. They reward the vine dresser For all the hard work. And through them, others are blessed. Here's where we remember that this song isn't really about a grape vineyard, but a spiritual one. And God has invested heavily in that spiritual vineyard, pouring out his grace on them. And given that, what should the result look like among God's people? A more skillful pastor than I came up with an alliterative list using contrasts in verse 7. He says God is looking for a concerned people, those who show kindness to the helpless and generosity to the needy. And he's looking for a consistent people who uphold justice and righteousness rather than hypocrisy. And of course, he's looking for a Christ-like people who reflect his holiness rather than the ways Of the world. And so God plants his grace in Judah. He labors in grace among the people and he waits for the produce of his labors. But what God found in them was the opposite of what he expected to find in people he'd given so much. He waited for the grapes that are the righteous fruit of faith, but instead he found at the end of verse two wild grapes. Nowadays, we think of wild fruits as potentially better, but that's not what Isaiah is thinking about at all. He's not comparing wild to industrially farmed. He's comparing wild with carefully cultivated and labored over. And it's the latter that tastes so much better. The Hebrew word, in fact, suggests not just wild grapes, but spoiled, rancid ones. Those ones you find in the bottom drawer of your fridge, that that don't look quite like grapes anymore, but they're definitely not raisins. And do you notice that the squandering of God's grace doesn't just result in no fruit. It results in bad fruit. Wild, rancid grapes. The works that we produce apart from God's grace aren't just neutral, they're rotten. Now, We must always remember that we are saved by grace through faith. The works that save us are not our own, but Christ's. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. He says to the Christians in Rome, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice and hope of the glory of God. On this point, Scripture could not be clearer. But Scripture is also clear that having saved a people from their sins by grace... God expects this people to bear fruit. Doesn't this morning's analogy, the vineyard, doesn't that show you just that? Jesus cursed a fig tree for having the appearance of producing fruit when upon closer inspection it had nothing good to offer. The Apostle James famously wrote, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not works? With Scripture, we can safely say, if there are no works, there is no real faith. And when this happens among God's people, in the place where God has poured out his grace so generously, what happens then? That's the critical question that begins to form in verse 3. O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? You see, the fruit is rotten. And there are only two possibilities. Either God did not do enough to produce good fruit. Or else the problem is with the vines. So, as Nathan did with David. Isaiah presents the hypothetical and asks Judah which side in this scenario is to blame. Is it the vine dresser who, after digging and clearing out the stones, planting the vineyard on a fertile hill and making all the preparations necessary for a harvest of good fruit, expects a return? Or is it the vines who produced wild grapes, rotten and spoiled? One teacher says of Judah, God gave them a holy law and a wonderful land, but they broke the law and defiled the land with their sins. They failed to produce fruit for God's glory when God had done for them all that he could do. Well, good thing we're not them. I mean, God's church is always producing good fruit for God, right? We're standing up for truth in a culture opposed to God, even at great cost to ourselves. We're living with confidence and joy as we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as we love our neighbor as ourselves. We're deeply committed to justice for all. We help the least of those among us. We're thankful in times of plenty, and times of want, and we always put others before ourselves. Right? See, Isaiah's point isn't just that we don't always live this way, producing good fruit for God. His point is that when we don't, who do we blame? Haven't you, like me, said before, if only God would, then I could. Haven't you also defended your disobedience with the language of what you lack from God? If God gave me better insurance, I could stop my worrying about health care. If he provided me with legitimate sexual satisfaction, I wouldn't have to look for it elsewhere. If he made my life less stressful, then I could be kinder to my family. If he gave me more time, then I could put his priorities on my list. Can you honestly claim that God needs to do more? For God to convince us to love him more than idols, what exactly do you suggest he should do? For us to be motivated in love, to really lift our hearts up to him in worship, what else should he provide that would justify the response? To guard our mouths, honoring God, in the way we talk, his name and his attributes and the people he's made in his image, is there something else we need to know that's good? In our hearts we say, if only God would, then we could. But at bottom, wrote one author, each one implies a criticism of God. As if he hasn't already given us all we need to live well for him. In his second epistle, Peter describes it in an alarming way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In his power, he's given us all things that we need for salvation. And for faithful living. Judah has some tough times coming. War. Occupation. Exile. And when it comes. Who do you think they will blame? Will it be the vines that produced rotten fruit? Or will it be the vine dresser? Despite the work he did for them. Does the person who resists grace usually blame themselves? Or do they find a way to blame the giver? What do you do? As we work through the rest of chapter 5 in the next few weeks, we'll find multiple examples of ways that God's people resist his grace. And we'll also find examples of the way that God disciplines his people when they do. The first of those is verses 5 and 6. As God was active in the work of preparing the vineyard for production, so he is also active in disciplining the vines when they fail to produce. Notice how many times he says, I will, in these verses. I will remove its hedge. I will break down its wall. I will make it a waste. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. When God's people in pride and stubbornness resist the work of his grace, God doesn't stop working. He just works differently. He works in a way that might call us back. Why? Because we were not made to produce rotten fruit. He gives grace to his people, saving and then sanctifying grace so that we will produce good Fruit, And it's not merely transactional, of course. Don't hear me saying that because the fruit that is produced comes through our union with Christ. It comes as we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And rotten fruit is clear evidence that we're not doing either one. Neither glorifying nor enjoying. What God expected from Judah, the people of his grace, was justice. And what he got in return was bloodshed. What he expected from the work he had done in them was righteousness. And what he received was outcry, wickedness. It's verse 7 then that breaks the news. This song wasn't about a grape vineyard. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vines he'd carefully prepared and tended and protected are the men of Judah, his pleasant planting. God worked heartily on their behalf, but what they produced for all of his efforts was worse than nothing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, working together with him, we appeal to you, Not to receive the grace of God in vain. For God says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. When did God help Judah, they might ask. We know the answer, because that's them and not us. (laughs) He called Abraham out of darkness and made a covenant of grace with him. He led the Israelites out of Egypt. He gave them his law and his word. He revealed himself. He gave them the land, peace and rest. And as Isaiah is preaching repentance to them, God is helping them even now. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the time of salvation. But then is the harder question. When has God helped you? He took on human flesh to reconcile man to God. He kept the law perfectly on our behalf. He went obediently to the cross, taking the punishment that was rightfully ours. He conquered death, raised from it to glory so that one day we will too. And he opened your heart to the truth of Christ making fertile the ground for the gospel's good fruit-bearing news. And what about now? Isn't he helping you even now? Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Think of all the work that God has done for us through grace. Think of all the work. That God has done for you through grace. And now consider what Paul means when he says. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. God offers us. Even here this morning in worship. He offers us the opportunity to be transformed by the power of his grace. If transformed by God isn't a phrase we would use to describe our lives? And what are we going to do to change it? In my preparation this week, I read this. The power of grace is not automatic. For each of us lives out an inner world with its own moral and emotional landscape. But God himself is telling us to face our weaknesses. Weaknesses. Let's stop thinking about how successful or not we are and figure out what it's going to take to get to the next level of productivity. And when by grace we get there, then let's ask how to get to the level above that. Let's take full advantage of the opportunity God has given us. We've got a lot going on in our lives. Each of us, spiritually, emotionally, circumstantially, and God made each of us differently. There's no one way for the Christian life to look, but there is one fruit that should come from every Christian life holiness, Christ likeness. Starting in prayer, but never remaining just there. We seek the grace of God, which produces Christ's likeness in us. Lives that love God can take many different forms, but all produce this fruit. They bless those who come into contact with them, and they make Christ appealing to those who do not know them. It does the doctrine of justification by faith no harm. For people of faith to ask themselves, are we yielding an abundant harvest of fruit proportional with the abundant grace God has invested in us? Is God getting back any return on what he's putting in? And I don't mean to weigh you down. Like Paul in our reading this morning, I can say I give thanks for you in each remembrance of the grace of God at work in you. I see it often. And God does, too. He sees the good fruits that you produce. And then he encourages you upwards. Hey, if you think that was good. Let me show you what else I can do with you and your faith and your gifts. By my grace. Are we actively engaged. In taking our Christ likeness to the next level. And then the next. And then the next. And then the next. If the answer is no. I want to assure you. That there is grace for that too. And so the question is. What will you do with it?